Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, I'm Colin Ellis, and this is On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. This week's doc is about a concept that may sound new to you, environmental racism. When I began the project, people were kind of scoffing at me, you know, you know, the environment is racist? Come on. You know, that was the attitude somebody said to me. What's next? The environment is sexist? That's Ingrid Waldron, a professor at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. She'd been a health researcher her whole career, but had only heard about this concept for the first time about seven years ago. So how does environmental racism really work? Maybe it's easier to explain by showing what it looks like. When Ingrid started studying it, she set out with a group of researchers to map out every landfill, toxic dump, and pollution-producing industrial site in Nova Scotia. Then she mapped out the communities that live near them. There's one layer of the map uh, solely for black communities, another layer for indigenous communities. That was done using GIS analysis. Um, What it shows is that the landfills, waste dumps are indeed close to black and indigenous communities. What it does not say, which I often have to explain to people, is that we're not saying that they're not close to white communities. Ingrid wrote a book about all this last year called There's Something in the Water. Not too long after the book came out, Ingrid noticed someone new follow her on Twitter, someone with a little blue checkmark on their profile. Someone named Ellen Page? Yes, that Ellen Page. You might know her from a little film called Juno. Three weeks later, I went back on that page and I noticed that there was a lot of activity. That page didn't really have a lot of activity because I'm not somebody who posts a lot or posts my thoughts about certain things. I just don't have the time. But I noticed there was a lot of activities to make me say, whoa, what's going on here? Why are people talking about my book? Who are these people and who are these new followers on my Twitter page? So I traced it back up and I said, Ellen Page, that's the girl that I saw on my page a few weeks ago. Is that Ellen Page, the actress? I realized it was her. And um, she was saying to everybody, go and read Ingrid Waldron's book. This is a fantastic book, etc., etc." Page and her co-director, Ian Daniel, set out to make a documentary version of Ingrid's book. The result, also called There's Something in the Water, premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival last fall. We talked to Ingrid about what it's like to have your work translated to film and what it's like when a celebrity is the one doing the translating. So, Ingrid, thank you so much for joining us today here. Thank you for having me. Um, So when people hear the word racism, they often think about individuals discriminating against each other based on race or ethnicity. And I wonder if environmental racism works the same way. So... When I began the project, people were kind of scoffing at me. You know, you know, the environment is racist. Come on, <laughs> you know, that was the attitude. Somebody said to me, "What's next? The environment is sexist." You know, so that was the the kind of understanding of it because people weren't understanding the institutional, structural aspects of environmental racism. So I guess what I would like to say is that environmental racism is about the fact that 
uh, people's ideologies about other people, whether or not other people are worthy and valuable or not. And we know that people typically think of black people and indigenous people as not having as much value as other people. Those ideologies get written into policy. And they get written into environmental policy specifically in ways that lead to the disproportionate exposure of certain communities to hazards, oftentimes because those communities don't have the power to fight back. So in the in my book, I talk about it, uh, I, I say that we need to look at this issue from an intersectional perspective, that these are not only racialized communities, non-white communities, but they're also low-income communities, communities lacking access to economic and political resources. And also in Nova Scotia, these are communities that tend to be located in rural areas. And we know that in rural areas, people have less access to particular resources. You put all those things together. When those issues converge, you get people who are not, I'm not going to say they're powerless. Everybody has personal power. But there are communities that lack political clout. They lack resources in order to be heard in many cases, and they lack the ability sometimes uh, to fight back against the siding of industry in their community. And we talk about government. This is governments. This is Nova Scotia government primarily, and is it uh, parties of all stripes that have been uh, implementing these policies? Um, well, the liberal government is in power now. Um, and, you know, the NDP, over the past few years, the NDP has been supportive of my work uh, and supportive of putting of, of um, putting out a bill of rights, an environmental bill of rights, and actually the NDP uh, collaborated with me on the first environmental racism bill ever in Canada, called Bill One 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 in twenty fifteen. So, um, it's really about the, the the government in power. The government in power is the liberal liberal uh, party, mm-hmm. and they don't seem to be too concerned about issues around climate change or about issues related to environmental. Racism. So I have to say that the NDP has been supportive of my work, has been supportive of a bill, but that bill is still sitting on the table. That bill was introduced in 2015, has been reintroduced every single year since then, um, but it's still sitting on the table. And we're, we're living in a time of anxiety about the environment, and it's mostly related to, I guess, climate change. And I guess I wonder where environmental racism sort of fits into that conversation. Um, it doesn't fit into the conversation as much as I would like in Nova Scotia and the rest of Canada, I see it as an aspect of climate change. Um, and the reason I do is because of the analysis that I bring to this. Uh, when people talk about climate change, they talk about the fact that we all have a right to a healthy environment and that climate change impacts all of us and there's an urgency around it. And that's uh, very true. Uh, but when I do lectures about environmental issues, including climate change and environmental racism, I try to bring those two issues together by saying, yes, but we still have to look at disproportionality. Because if you are a low-income single woman living in a rural environment who's disabled, um, your ability to fight back against and survive and flourish after the impacts of climate change uh, would be much more difficult than somebody who wasn't, for example, single, somebody who was able-bodied, etc. So we still have to look at marginality. Hmm. We still have to look at marginalized communities because people are impacted by climate change in very uh, different ways. And people are impacted by industries in very various ways, right? So I just mentioned it, environmental racism, disproportionality. So my goal is to get people who are, you know, climate change activists to understand that environmental racism is a part of that. And are climate change activists uh, more receptive to, to hearing arguments about 
environmental racism? In Nova Scotia, I'm happy to say yes. I mean, I'm connected, of course, through my work to young environmental activists. That's really, that is the hot issue in Nova Scotia, across Canada, but it's really palpable in, in Nova Scotia. And those are the people I'm connected to. Unfortunately, I wish they could, when they do their presentations or talk about it on social media, that they can discuss environmental racism within that analysis more often, but also talk about marginality in the way that I just discussed. That's not really happening. There's still a focus on science, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, all important issues, but and very scientific. And, and scientific is great. But for the average person on the ground, they're saying to themselves, I'm not really sure how this impacts me. Mm. Um, so while, yes, uh, some of those students, activists are very engaged in my work, they come to the, to, the, um, to the lectures that I deliver, they come to the public engagement events that I put on, when left to their own accord, they're not bringing in some of the issues that I've discussed. So I'd like to see mm. more of that. Well, let's talk a bit more about your work. You, you co-founded uh, the Enrich Project. Uh, just tell us a bit about that. Uh, the Environmental Noxiousness, Racial Inequities, and Community Health Project, the acronym is the Enrich Project, was developed in 2012. It was actually brought to me in a way. It was an environmental, environmental activist, and he said, I'd like you to take on this project. I'm leaving to go to California, and I think maybe in the hands of a professor who has access to research grants and who could really sustain this, maybe this will go somewhere. So he kind of, I wouldn't say handed it over, but he said, I want you to do this project. And my initial response was, I don't know anything about the environment. And that's probably shocking to people because now I do this work. I said, I understand health and I understand marginality. I understand indigenous peoples and black peoples. That's the research I do. I'm a health researcher. But this environmental piece, I am very nervous about this. I don't know enough. I'm wondering, you know, I I would wonder if somebody's going to call me out because I'm not an environmental scientist. I wasn't Mm. trained that way. I took it on because it it felt like a challenge. It was political. It was controversial. I was look. I was hungering for some new challenge. So I said yes. So it started in 2012, and the first step for me was to actually get to know communities, develop relationships. I do community based research, and that means that you have to take some time to get to know people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that means that you're not doing research. You're just building relationships. So it started in 2012, and I put on some public engagement events, and then I got some grants, and I started doing research. So. Um, it's 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 a research project that is very much driven by community. They tell me what they want, and I try to respond by doing some of the things that they want me to do. And you and you map out waste disposal sites. Is that correct? Yes. Just around Nova Scotia. So what what is that? What does it show? Uh, if you go onto the uh, map on the Enrich Project site, you will see uh, a map that shows the location of waste dumps, incinerators, landfills close to indigenous and black communities. There's one layer of the map uh, solely for black communities, another layer for indigenous communities. That was done using GIS analysis. Um, What it shows is that the landfills, waste dumps are indeed close to black and indigenous communities. What it does not say, which I often have to explain to people, is that we're not, we're not saying that they're not close to white communities. Hmm. But if you look at the population size of African Nova Scotians in Nova Scotia, it's about 2% and indigenous people uh, under that, perhaps 1.5%. And then you look at the map and you see how many sites are close to these communities. You see that disproportionality we're talking about. And while there are some white communities, and often it's low-income uh, working class white communities are near to industries that are hazardous. It cannot be argued that these industries are 
uh, certainly disproportionately in black and indigenous communities. Mm. So it's I see the map as another tool in my toolbox. If I were to go to government to argue my case or to do a presentation, you know, I've got research, I've got my book, I've got uh, the maps, I've got uh, tools in my toolbox to make my case and to make an argument. So it's another piece of the mm. puzzle. Do you know how... Um important those industries are to, I guess, the economic well-being of Nova Scotia? And are they employing people from those communities as well? And that's a difficult and challenging part of this research. You know, I talk in the book about capitalism and neoliberalism and that, you know, it's about profits over people. And that's why this particular issue is very hard. Uh, in a case like um, Peak to Landing First Nation, which has had a contaminated site since 1967, it's called Boat Harbor, um, people have been employed um, through the mill that's mm-hmm. employing people. And right now we're at a point where some people actually want that to continue on because people are employed. Uh, in, in many of the cases, for example, in Lincolnville, which is an African Nova Scotian community, uh, people were employed uh, as well uh, through that landfill. However, that community, which is a black community, was promised jobs and that never panned out for them. So yes, uh, this issue of capital, capitalism, uh, uh, economics is central to this issue, and people are fearful of losing out, right, if they halt many of these industries. Another case is Alton Gas Project in uh, Sibanagadi, an indigenous community, um, stand to make a lot of money from that Alton Gas pipeline. Um, communities have resisted that uh, over the past four years. Uh, so those are examples of where communities are in a really hard, uh, difficult situation because it's about capital. It's mm-hmm. about profit over people's. So when you're walking through one of these sites, uh, I guess near a paper mill, I've never been, I grew up in the city. I didn't see anything like this growing up. What, what, what can you, how can you describe it? A stench. Really. Um, I visited, I was invited by an environmental activist uh, from Pictou Landing First Nation, which is where much of the stench is, uh, to visit the community and also just to go around the community um, will make you feel like you're going to throw up. Hmm. Um, unbearable. You can see uh, Ellen in the film just putting her she coat does, over. Yeah. It is unbearable. That's what our community smells like. Sometimes you go into our community buildings and our homes and you feel that, like it just sticks to the walls. These are the aerators. They're supposedly giving oxygen to the water, which is fairly sad, but uh, back in the day when they said that it would have no impact, this is what we're left with. Uh, all this is uh, blown over into our community. So not only are we suffering knowing that, you know, this exists to our water, <laughs> look at our air as well. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. It also looks, if you, can, if you see it uh, visually on screen or in photographs, you just see brown. And they've been dealing with that since 1967. When I went to meet the community and I finally sat down after getting a tour of Peak to Landing First Nation, uh, in speaking to uh, the community there, this is an everyday thing for them. They're constantly smelling it. For some, they have gotten accustomed to the smell, but for others, they have not. Um, so we had a discussion about their everyday kind of living with that stench um, and also, of course, the impacts on, on health, um, 
because there have been dire, similar to Shelburne, impacts on health, uh, high rate, extremely high rates of cancer in that community. Have those communities also seen a lot of population loss? Like, have people just moved? Um, this is an interesting question because, you know, oftentimes I get from, you know, sometimes students who would say, well, Professor Waldron, why don't they just move? Right. It's an interesting thing. And my answer to that would be that low-income, racialized communities can't just move. In Nova Scotia, many of them are in rural areas because it's much cheaper to live there. Housing is much, much cheaper. Um, in addition to the fact that these are their communities, this is where they have been brought up. This is where um, their parents are from. It's very intergenerational. The issue isn't whether or not they should move. The issue is why are these uh, industries placed in these communities? That should be actually the question. But I think the real issue is um, communities that are low income tend to stay. Communities that are higher income, typically white in Nova Scotia, um, tend to move out. Um, and there have been studies about this, you know, that soon as you put a landfill in a particular community, the people that have the ability to move out because they've got the socioeconomic means can, and the people who do not cannot. So they must stay. Then many of them want to stay, but for those who uh, want to leave, oftentimes they cannot because they cannot afford housing uh, in other parts of uh, the province. Now, in Lincolnville, the African Nova Scotian community that has had a landfill since 1974, there has been out-migration of young people, uh, young African Nova Scotians. Many of them have gone to other parts of Canada, however, because they cannot find jobs in Lincolnville because that landfill, which although they were promised jobs, that never panned out. So many of them have left. So there's a lot of out-migration in Lincolnville, and Lincolnville consequently now is an elderly community. Um, it's an elderly community that, of course, doesn't work. They're all retired. So the economic base is faltering, right? They don't have jobs because they can't get a job uh, through the landfill, uh, but they're an elderly population because the young people have moved out. So that kind of socioeconomic instability, for me, also compounds the issue of environmental racism. And people say, why can't they just leave? Mm -hmm. Well, the doc does talk about pick two, but it also talks about uh, Shelburne, which is, a, I guess, a largely uh, black neighborhood. And it's, uh, it's like has roots going back to, I guess, when the loyalists came from the United States to Nova Scotia. Um, talk a bit about that like, site. Yeah, so there's Shelburne and the black communities predominantly in South Shelburne. So the white community is typically in the north, you know, predominantly in the north of Shelburne. So we're talking specifically about the south of Shelburne. And uh, African Nova Scotians in the south end of Shelburne have been near, uh, some would say it's a dump, others would say it's a landfill since the 1940s, which has collected a lot of waste uh, from the hospital and army base, etc. Um, dead body parts uh, were, were in that landfill. Dead um, body parts? Yes. <laughs> Don't ask. But that's, you know, if you looked at the film, they mentioned that it's kind of shocking. Yeah. Right. So they have been uh, near to that landfill since the 1940s. And I met with Louise Delisle, who's featured in the film mm -hmm. in 2015. I had a job. I had I wanted to hire somebody to do focus groups because I wanted to know more about it. And I hired Louise at the end of uh, 2015 to do that. And um, that she, what the first thing she said to me was, 
oh, do you think the landfill has anything to do with the very high cancer rates in my community? Everybody has cancer, Ingrid. And I thought that was a stunning thing to say. I'd never heard of any community that everyone has cancer. She said, my mother has cancer. My sister has cancer. This other guy has cancer. About 98, 97% of the people in my community has cancer. And I thought that couldn't possibly be. Um, so I thought this is an important community to look at. Um, so since then, uh, we have been doing research on water testing in that community. They've, it's a, this is a low-income, poor African Nova Scotian community. Don't have the resources, once again, to do water testing. So I brought together an environmental engineer, uh, hydrogeologist, uh, environmental science students, myself, and we started a water testing uh, project to look at, uh, finally, what is in their water um, to identify contaminants in the water, and that's kind of ongoing. Um, there's some information that I was given by Louise just two days ago that I guess uh, supports her her argument that high rates of cancers due con- to contaminants. What mm-hmm. we found so far last year in December was coliform and E. coli, um, which is not necessarily leading to cancer, but they can because we know that any kind of inflammation in the body, that's what cancer is, it's inflammation, can lead to cancer. Since then, uh, at TIFF, I spoke with uh, Louise and she said, Ingrid, no, we found some other stuff. We're doing some other stuff. I said, oh, I didn't know that. She said, yes. Um, and I said, so what do you think about these people, these naysayers who say it's not, it's not it's, it, cancer is not caused by the landfill? And she says, well, we've got some more evidence and I know in my bones that, that it is. Hmm. Whatever it is, and I believe there, it is due to the landfill, the, the fact that almost everyone has cancer is stunning. It's a bit of a coincidence if uh, they yes. all have cancer, yeah. Yes. And does it seem to affect? It, it seems like mostly men who end up getting sick and 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 mm-hmm. passing away. I wondered about that. If if why that is? If that's just a coincidence or or what? I don't know why that is. I know when I spoke to Louise and maybe other women, the men, African Nova Scotian men, worked in forestry hmm. and they worked outdoors. So in my book, I talk about the gendered pathways of environmental exposure and the health impacts, meaning that we have to look at the issue of gender when we think about how men and women are differently exposed to environmental contaminants. So when we th- And we, we have to think about labor. So when we think about where men work, men are typically predominantly in outdoor work, uh, exposed to certain types of contaminants. Men on the street that we see, manual labor um, and industries where men are predominantly located versus women. When we think of hotels in Toronto, and we think of house cleaning staff. They are predominantly uh, women, and they're predominantly women from low-income, marginalized uh, women of color. And the women are also, like, like at least in the film, and, and I, I presume in your book as well, like, they're the, they're the activists, too. They're the ones that are really pushing uh, the government to do something. And there's this great scene of uh, one uh, woman, indigenous woman, uh, confronting Justin Trudeau. Um, I wonder why, why so many women have taken up this cause for a while, I didn't know that. I just noticed that in my rich project, it was always women. And I was actually getting kind of angry. I'm like, okay, so where are the men? Why are the women doing all the work? And it's got, it's got to be tiring and stressful. Um, and then Doreen Bernard, uh, who's the leader in Indianbrook in Sibinagadi, uh, said to me, she said, actually, this is our cultural tradition, Ingrid. Women are water protectors. We carry the water. We give birth right? So we create human beings. We give birth. In our culture, in Mi'kmaq culture, um, we are responsible for taking care of the water. Hmm. So 
they see it as their responsibility. So that makes sense for that community. In terms of the black community, there's not that sense of we are the water protectors. But certainly, we know if we think about black communities and black families, um, and the fact that tip, so black women are oftentimes leading their households, it's kind of natural mm-hmm. and organic that black women would take up the fight in this case as well because black women, you know, black communities, black families are typically matriarchal Hmm. um, and women lead in many ways. Uh, Because of discrimination in terms of gender and race, men, black men are often outside of the labor system, right? And they are less likely to be employed. They're much more likely to be underemployed. Hmm. So socially, in many ways, black women tend to do better than black men. Um, and black women are often leading their families. Uh, so that it, it now makes sense to me um, when I see black women kind of taking up arms and leading. And it certainly makes cultural sense in terms of the Mi'kmaq community as well. Do you worry about your own health? It's so funny that you mentioned that because uh, just knowing, you know, where I came from and, you know, the family that's gone before me and I've, I've never expected to live long. I'm, I'll be 41, you know, next week. And knowing that, you know, everybody, you know, passed away so young. Um, I had always felt that, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to get a chance to grow old. And sometimes I think that way. Well, we should talk about... Uh uh, the, the filmmakers in this uh, in this film uh, bit. Uh, you published the book. There's something in the water, and then an actress by the name of Ellen Page happens to read it. She follows you on Twitter, and maybe you could tell us what happened after that. Sure. I mean, the book came out in 2008, February, and then in October, I I woke up and I went on to one of my two Twitter pages. I have a Twitter page specifically for my project, and then my own personal page. And I noticed that um, somebody was following me by the name of Ellen Page, but it, because it didn't say actress Ellen Page, it just said I'm a tiny Canadian. It didn't <laughs> connect. And then the picture that she chose to put on her profile just was very blurry and it was brown. It was just kind of sepia color. And I didn't think anything of it. So I went away. Three weeks later, I went back on that page and I noticed that there was a lot of activity. That page didn't really have a lot of activity because I'm not somebody who posts a lot or post my thoughts about certain things. I just don't have the time. But I noticed there was a lot of activities to make me say, whoa, what's going on here? Why are people talking about my book? Who are these people and who are these new followers on my Twitter page? So I traced it back up and I said, Ellen Page, that's the girl that I saw on my page a few weeks ago. Is that Ellen Page, the actress? I realized it was her. And um, she was saying to everybody, go on reading Grid Waldron's book. This is a fantastic book, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's how it began. And then um, her friend, uh, who has known Ellen for over 15 years, said, would you like me to put you in touch with her on the phone? We can talk. Um, and see what we can come up with. We did. That was the week of Christmas last year. And we did a three-way call. And she said, I want to use my celebrity, my platform to help this case. I'm a Nova Scotian. Um, and I find this appalling. And I want to kind of figure out how I can use my celebrity. And I, it took us a while to figure it out. For me, it was like, okay, she's in New York. She lives in New York now. Um, the best thing she could really do is tweet. You know, I, that's what I thought. I could tweet some stuff. She can tweet it out. She's got two point whatever million yeah, followers. Yeah, followers. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> right. So this could be really great if if the Mi'kmaq women want to set up a GoFundMe page and they need money and Ellen tweets it out. Can you imagine uh, how that can get out there? 
through a few conversations, then we said, what about film? But we weren't thinking of a feature-length film, and we weren't thinking about TIFF. We were thinking about little clips that we can post on Twitter. That's it. Mm. And then we, she came up in April, and she filmed for 10 days. And I went back to her, home, her mother's home, and we looked at the footage, and, I, and we said, we have something here. This is passionate. It's very emotional. And I said, we really need to do this justice. If we just do a kind of hack job and post it clips on Twitter, what is that really going to do? These women have invested their time. We see them crying on screen. It's emotional. We need to do this justice, I said. I said, I think we need a feature-length film. I think we need to use more film. And I think we need to, we need to put this out at a film festival. Hmm. And I said, TIFF. And I think Ian said, oh, if it doesn't get accepted by TIFF, we can go to the Berlin Film Festival. There's Sundance, et cetera. So we started talking about that after we filmed. But to tell you the truth, that wasn't, TIFF wasn't on our mind. A feature film wasn't. It just organically grew when we started to see the footage and we started to see how powerful it was. Yeah. Well, you mentioned celebrity. You know, you, she wanted to use her celebrity to make this issue more well-known. And celebrities do get involved in causes. I mean, animal rights is one. Um, is her is her involvement different in in a way? I think it is. Some people can say, and I think she was concerned about this, that her celebrity would distract, and it can. I think it's different because she is a Nova Scotian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's different because I get a sense, even though she would say differently, she's very well liked. You know, she get hates mail. She gets hate mail because she's gay, um, but uh, she is well liked in Nova Scotia. I can tell. I can tell that on Twitter, how people talk about her. She has respect as an actress. She's not, she's an actress. She's a real actress. Great actress. More than a celebrity. Um, She still has family in Nova Scotia. She, her family used to live close to Shelburne. Um, So there's a kind of intimate connection that she has, regardless of whether or not she's not living here, you know, she's not living here anymore, living in Nova Scotia anymore. She's got an intimate connection and she's real. In meeting her, um, I saw somebody who was truly authentic and real and really wanted to help and who who is low key and wasn't about getting attention for herself, but in a way to kind of remove herself from it to allow people to speak. So in that way, she is the perfect uh, person. You know, I would imagine doing this work would make you well, it would make anyone angry, especially at the at the government. Um, and yeah, I just I wonder if uh, yeah, it's sort of chipped if the, if doing this work and looking into environmental racism is sort of chipped away at this um, image that we have of Canada. I think people would be surprised to know that I don't get angry. I just keep working. Um, anger could be wasted. Hmm. I, I'm very determined. Um, I keep going. I'm somebody. I'm very strong internally. And while there have been setbacks, and while I wish government would do much more, my response is not to get angry. I'm very familiar with racism. I've experienced it myself. I'm not shocked by it. Anger doesn't come into play anymore for me. It's hard to explain that. For me, it's about what can I do differently? How can I get in through the back door? Uh, how can I be more creative in the way that I get a response from government? Okay, so that didn't work. So what? what's next? What do I have to brainstorm on next? I'm con- constantly moving forward. I don't have much time uh, for anger. So I will allow other people to get angry as they should. It's impacting them, definitely. But for me, if I'm going to hold it together uh, through my project, I need to put one foot in front of the other, and I just don't have time for anger. <laughs> it sounds very clinical, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think well, that's a really good place to leave it, and I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. 
and that's the podcast. There's Something in the Water isn't in theaters yet, but you can definitely pick up the book at a bookstore near you. And if you want to learn more about what the Enrich Project is up to, you can visit their website at enrichproject.com. If you like what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and better yet, tell a friend. We always love to hear from you, so if you want to let us know what you think of this episode or environmental racism, just write to us at ondocs at tvo.org. And you can also follow me on Twitter at colinellis81. Thanks to producers Chantal Berganza and Matthew O'Mara, and production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Howell. Kathy Vay is executive producer for Digital at TVO. We'll catch you at the next screening. <laughs>